Hey, welcome everybody. I am so glad you are joining us today. I am Katie Cole and I'm here with my co-host William Vanderblumen. And we are excited to be continuing uh, this topic on how to lead your church teams well. Today we're jumping into a really wonderful topic. I'm super excited about it. All about leading multiple generations on staff and really in your church. Many of the principles we're going to talk about today can impact your staff team, they can impact the ministry department or the campus that you lead, but it can also really impact how you speak to your church, how you organize volunteers, maybe even your family. So this is an area that is really becoming a hot topic in the workplace, and we are seeing it uh, at even greater heights uh, in church staffs. And the pandemic has only done what the pandemic is doing. We've been talking about this. It's really accelerated a lot of these conversations as people have felt under pressure or our team dynamics or our systems and processes have been challenged like uh, never before. Uh, this issue of multiple generations, um, how gener uh, Gen Xers like myself, maybe even boomers that you have on staff interact with millennials or even Gen Z. And of course, now we're really looking at Generation Alpha coming in, which has a completely different orientation to the world, especially now after this year. And so we are really privileged today to have two of the leading voices on this, particularly in church and ministry spaces. And so it's really my pleasure to welcome Grant Skelton and Hannah Granowski with us today. So thank you both so much. I wanna give a little quick introduction and then I'm gonna um, throw you a couple questions to get started. But I've known um, of these two for a long time. I've become really good friends with Grant. We've been working together for a couple years now. Hannah and I know each other um, more recently, but I'm just really impressed with uh, a lot of her leadership and the way she is approaching this topic. We were just talking before the show. Uh, I think most of us are aware of the fact that we are really uh, walking into sort of a reinvention of the church. And this millennial generation, um, which really are not that young anymore, we're talking 30 year olds really are the millennial generation. Um, but that has been sort of the linchpin generation um, that has sort of said, you know what, I appreciate what you're doing, but this isn't working for me. Uh, Gen Xers like me, we kind of don't like anything, you know, that's established. That's the, we're sort of anti-established on anything. So the church just lined up with everything else we didn't like. But millennials really said, we know we have something to offer. Offer. We're going to access the things that are helping us. And so it's been a topic in young adult ministry, youth ministry for a long time. Um, but now we're really starting to face it in our church staff and leadership development um, pipelines. And so Grant has been talking about this for a while. Uh, Grant is the founder of Initiative Network and is the author of a great book called The Passion Generation. If you haven't read The Passion Generation, I really want to recommend it to you, um, especially if you are newer to this topic and some of the innate drivers uh, for uh, younger leaders, as well as how your church can be rethinking how it disciples uh, its believers and what you do with your older members who are mentoring younger believers. So he is really a leading voice on helping the church reinvent that. Um, he uh, His sort of tagline is he particularly helps churches and parents who are trying to reach, raise, and retain the next generation. So Grant, thank you so much for being here. We're really excited that we're going to get your perspective on our conversation today. And Hannah is the founder. Hannah is the founder and CEO, um, and wrote a book by the same name for Generation Distinct, which has what I think is one of the most innovative ways to engage young people in understanding their passion and calling. Most of us know this is a real passion-oriented uh, next generation coming up, and uh, we were talking. It's sometimes a little uh, question mark to those of us who are older because there's a lot of passion, sometimes not a lot of follow-through, and that's a big issue we meet when we're managing staff teams because there's all this energy and maybe there's a lot of social media flurry, but there isn't always strategy behind it. And so she has really put together a really incredible program and wrote a book about the same process. I encourage you to look it out um, or look it up, Generation Distinct. Um, plus, she just got married uh, a week and a half ago and is came back from her honeymoon and saw the email to be on here. So we added her in. So Hannah, thanks for making space for us and jumping into this really important topic. So I'd love to ask and really get both of your perspectives on this. Grant, I'll start with you, um, your take on it first, but what would you say are some of the biggest challenges teams are facing right now, sort of post-pandemic as we're opening back up, as we're coming out of all virtual to hybrid to now who knows what we're gonna be, what's sort of your perspective on the biggest challenges we're facing when multiple generations are trying to lead church together or lead ministry together in this dynamic? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I would say for sure, in my opinion, it would be the shift in millennials and Gen Z uh, job hopping. Uh, just they don't, they're not, them not staying in a job long is just very difficult when you're trying to hire someone. And then let alone if you're trying to put culture into them. I remember uh, Craig Rochelle once saying something effective, like once you're so tired of talking about your culture and talking about the mission, and when you're sick of it, that's when your team is starting to get it. It's only until they're tired of talking about it that the congregation and the organization is getting it. And I think about that and I'm like, that takes time to, bleed that kind of culture into new hires and it stinks if you lose them right when you start getting it and then you have to hire someone else and so I, I I do speak to a lot of leaders older than myself and I'm like I get it in some ways I mean some ways there's great opportunities in the next generation but that's one of those areas I'm like I gotta lead my own staff is mostly young that's who I can afford it and it's definitely in the leading in the workplace uh where I I resonate the most with the older generations where I'm like, uh, you guys kind of do stuff. <laughs> like when you guys do this, that's so frustrating. Like it's so hard. Like, um, and so, yeah, I think the, the shifts and changes that impacted every generation because of COVID, I mean, so many people moving to new States, they never thought they'd leave their, their city. They lived in their whole life, including myself being with Q in Nashville and Q ideas. And then, um, Two, uh, yeah, just you've seen a lot of people change jobs, change careers. And so I think young people are doing that a lot as well. Just it's going, I don't think it's going to change either. We could either complain about it or adapt to it. Yeah. Awesome. That is very true. And I know a lot of our folks who are listening are agreeing and amening and nodding their head with that one. Uh, Hannah, how about you? What do you think are some of the biggest challenges, couple of challenges that people are facing? Yeah, I mean, I think especially coming out of COVID, it's interesting that I, as I talk to different generations of leaders, I, I get this sense that older generations are kind of excited to go back to the world as it was. And the younger generation is really excited to create a new normal. Mm -hmm. And so I, I could sense that that could be a pretty big um, tension point as they all emerge back into the same workplaces, right? Because you're going to have these next generation leaders walking back into your workplace and saying, okay, great. We just learned how to work digitally. We just learned how to do virtual meetings. We just learned how to connect with people around the globe. We, we learned a whole new lifestyle. How are we going to implement that? While senior leaders or more experienced leaders might say, whoa, whoa, we had something that worked before. Let's just go back. And so I think it's going to be a really important time for this conversation in general, but also for leaders in every organization to actually be able to say, all right, maybe there's both. Maybe there's things we can return back to and things that we can learn and engaging both those voices in those conversations. Oh, I love that. Well, and I think what you're talking about is a lot of times it's about the right language and how we frame those conversations. It's yeah. so easy for us to fall into either or. It's either this or this. Yeah. Yes. And, um, God loves the diversity of many ideas, right? And he loves the diversity of multiple generations. And yeah. when we recognize that and want all voices at the table, we can reframe it and talk about it differently. What are the things we should keep? What are the things that we can use this to our advantage to reinvent? And then maybe we even uh, let people choose which team to be on instead of assigning them just so we can sort of be living in the orientation that God wired us to have yeah. um, that does give a lot of more natural momentum to a team. Yeah. So I want to remind everybody, and for those of you joining us uh, now, welcome. Uh, we are talking about leading multiple generations on the same staff team. We would love your questions in the chat. So if you could take a few minutes and post in there, even right now, some of your top questions, uh, we will get those answered throughout our next hour. And so William, I want to hand it off to you. What questions do you have for Grant and Hannah? Well, I, you know, we always start with our own issues when we're talking through <laughs> things. So I'm just wondering if our uh, guests might help me understand. It appears that if you choose to have books or things on your desk, you are an old person. <laughs> just looking at the panel view of this call, I don't know, you know, like, is it all digital? I did Do you that, own yeah. books? Do you... <laughs> <laughs> no, it's funny it's the it's it, it's funny when we do a senior pastor succession and the guy who's been there forever retires and the new younger person comes in invariably the most common request is can we get rid of all the bookshelves right. it's kind of interesting because yeah. it's all kindle or whatever isn't that funny yeah. yeah no i you know what i would like to know is how what tips could you two give us the older people on how to 
understand mindset. So like, like um, we have some, we have a lot of millennials on our staff and they're forever saying, I always just try and think, what is it like if you were married and have kids? Well, I'm like, well, that's kind of a really cool way to think. They're trying to get inside. Well, okay, this must. So what would be a couple ideas that come to mind? So, hey, those of us listening right now, if you're over 40 or 45, what would be some key? Just remember the Gen Z or even millennial. I don't even know about alpha, but like, here's some of their circumstance that might not be the same as yours. Yeah. It's good. Yeah. I mean, I think one thing that's really true of every person, but really, you know, shows off, especially in millennials and Gen Z is that idea of we're not going to care about what you care about until we know that you care about us and for better, for worse, we're a little bit, you know, self-focused in the next generation and that's beautiful um, in some ways. For example, we were raised in this culture that really started to communicate to the next generation, you can do whatever you want to, right? There was that shift as we were, as millennials and Gen Z were growing up, that marketing, I mean, everything like Disney Channel shows, movies, Pixar, there was this messaging being pumped into us as kids that, you are amazing. You are special. You can do whatever you want to do. Those are really great messages. We just have to know we heard them. And so because of that, we now have young leaders who really do believe that. So if they come then into your workplace and they're not feeling that. They're not saying that. They don't feel like you see the special parts about them, what makes them different and unique, the unique passions within them they're going to probably pack up and leave pretty quick. And again, that there are, there are good things and bad things about that, right? That, that isn't necessarily a po- all positive quality. It's just the reality of who they are. And so I think, especially in this generation, to think through, okay, how can I make them feel like I identify not as them as an employee or as filling just a position, but as the unique individual that they are. And if I can tap into them feeling that I see them as a unique, special, gifted human, then they will even more want to engage with what you are passionate in the, about and the vision that you're moving forward. That's so good. Grant, you're in the hot seat. You're in the <laughs> pointer. Um, uh, that's not... So it's funny she brought up, uh, like, I think you brought up Disney for a second. And I, I've never shared this before. And I almost wrote about this. And I'm like, I don't I need to think it out a little bit more. But it's just you point out something is I, I started noticing that most starting around the 90s, a lot of the these Disney princesses, but even some of the guys, but especially Disney princesses, there's these common themes of what their parents want for them is not what they want for their own life. Um, yeah. Like Jasmine doesn't want to just get married to whoever it may be the redheaded girl i'm going blank on her name she wants to be a warrior not just a princess and uh beauty doesn't want to marry gaston and he's the thing like everything the dad's like i'm looking out for you i'm trying to protect you the kids are like no and they end up all like going and they don't just go and do their own adventure they always have like a their friends and their friends are always like diverse because they're freaking animals. They're like these little animals that always accompany them. And I'm like, it is interesting. It's like, we all want to like, I want to defy a little bit of what my parents think is best yeah. for me. Go find some friend group and we're just going to go and do pave a new way. Uh, this is random, but I, I do think uh, I look at call. I look at the American experience and American success. And I know a couple of the staple things that our parents are like, this is how it works. It just doesn't work like it used to. I mean, uh, I always say going to college has a better guarantee of putting you in debt than it has of getting you a job um, within a year of graduating. Yeah. Uh, so many, uh, William, you, you, especially with what you do. I mean, I'd love if you guys ever did a study of how many pastors have a, a bachelor's or a master, a bachelor's specifically, or even remotely close to the work that they're doing today. Cause I don't think most of them do. It's like, okay, I went to school for this, but now I'm doing this. And so um I think college has really been turned into an experience where you figure yeah. out what you want to do. And I, I mean, I couldn't more implore parents of like, there's way cheaper experiences for your kids than going to college to figure out what they want to do. I would never let my kid go to college until they know what they want to do. Yeah. And we might need to give some experience and exposure and a year gap years until, however, I want to go back to um, something I'm probably the most passionate about. Uh, 
business leaders adapting to? Because again, I, I am frustrated as much as they are with the job hopping is um, I don't think that's going to change. Like, I think we could try to create a campaign and say, this is what it used to be like. Uh, my dad, like many other uh, men and women of that generation had two or three jobs and they, they're faithful. It's like each job was nine years, 10 years long. And so they can't fathom the idea of two or three jobs. Uh, every, I mean, a new job, like every two or three years. Uh, I remember seeing a study saying that the average millennial will have 14 jobs by the age of 40 years old. And so that's a lot of moving. So here's my, it's a little bit long, but I do want to, uh, I do think it's helpful is I think uh, we need to adapt to a discipleship and or training or just the best development culture we can. Um, similar to, I think what groups do this really well, even better than the church sometimes is uh, college campus ministries. And it might sound strange, but in my opinion, often, not always, but often college campus ministries are so intentional about discipleship. And I don't think it's actually because they're more wise or strategic. I think it's just necessity. College campus ministers have no option but to disciple and equip because they know they're going to lose their, their young people. Uh, so they tend to be like, I'm pouring into them as best as possible. It's not enough for them to show up every Tuesday night or Wednesday night or even Sunday morning. I've got to get them develop because I know I'm going to lose them. It's like hundred percent of my young leaders I'm pouring into will leave. And, and I think that forces us out of the, the, the stuck uh, mentality of how do I get them to just be a member, to serve, to give and stay here for a lifetime. It's like, no, I'm, I'm losing them. So how do I make them the best missionaries and disciple makers wherever they go, whether it's in the business world, nonprofit world, church world, politics, arts. Um, and I think that the church and business leaders can learn a lot from that of if you know, statistically, if you know young people are not in the mentality and nature of staying for a long time, how do you build a culture that attracts the best talent as a young, that young people, the best young people are going to be attracted to working for you because you have a development like culture. And I also think of college, uh, coaches, uh, basketball coaches, football coaches, uh, for years, coach K at, uh, has, attracted some of the best talents really really good talent for certain nick saban they they move to certain schools even get less opportunity or random cities that they have to live in because they know that coach creates nfl superstars or that coach creates nba superstars and so uh, if you have a culture of developing knowing that guy has to know every two three four years i'm losing an all-star um i but they keep getting more and I think it, it reminds me of Good to Great with Jack Welch. And when they talk about just build that kind of culture where, yeah, you might lose a lot of guys and they might end up becoming CEOs, but the rest of the leaders that want to one day be a CEO will know that's the guy I want to work for. And I think for young people, since yeah. most cultures are just dissing them, critiquing them, making fun of them or complaining about them, when you have a culture that's like, hey, we know when some of y'all don't want to be here forever, yeah. but we want to make you the best leaders that when you leave yeah. – it's you're marked by a great culture. They know if you worked here, you could be hired almost anywhere. I found that more young leaders would want to stay longer because they're like, I'm not going to find this anywhere else. This kind of culture that wants to develop uh, me, yeah. and me. So I want to stay a little bit longer and invest. But help, help me uh, give me a true or false and then whatever false follows from it. So, so I couldn't agree more with what you're saying. Totally spot on with what I see in the job market. And by the way, it's interesting. Um, you know, North Carolinian born, right? So uh, Coach K, Roy Williams, and even that before that, Coach Smith. Uh, but Roy and Coach K uh, won't say it out loud, but they're getting out because they don't get, lose players every two, three, four years. So they lose players after one year. So they're yeah, doing yeah, the same the same thing. The transfer portal has changed everything. And it's it sounds like a joke, but it's actually what <laughs> you're going to be dealing with in your church yeah. or your nonprofit. Yeah. It's the same sort of dynamic. So to me, I'm advising clients, do whatever you can to increase retention. And that doesn't mean from three years to 20. It means from three years to four. Right. You know, or four to five. So I, I've come to believe, and this is what I'd love for you to tell me right or wrong and, and then expound, that one of the missing pieces in churches, particularly larger churches, is a development path forward. Yeah. Yeah. People look work at their current job, but in my, when I was younger, I was always thinking about my next job. That's not a very nice thing to say, but it's just where your mind is when you're young. I sense that even more now. And it's like, if you want to retain someone, 
show them from day one, here's your job now, and this could be your job next. And it, and it is so anti-boomer. Like, boomers would be like, you work hard, and you stay where you are, and then maybe you'll get... Re- am I right on that, or am I just... I mean, does I need, like, a course correction? Yes. I, I'll just say one line, is I think that I told you so uh, kind of parenting has definitely bled into that boomer leadership in the marketplace where you're asking your mom or dad, why do I got to do this? And it's like, I told you so. That's all you need to know. I'm like... Well, I don't, I, I, the why, they do want to know the why more. So I, I, I see that too, William. What do you think? I think Hannah. I, I also predict that I also, I want to uh, hear from Hannah, but I, I also think that'll change when people who are tired of that have their own two-year-olds. Just, just prediction. <laughs> just a prediction. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, I, I totally agree. I, I really do believe that, especially in churches, sometimes it's a little over spiritualized, like let's just be real. And so it, we accuse people of being prideful if they want to have more opportunity. And I think that's really, really sad because oftentimes I see so many of my peers finding more opportunity to live out their leadership ability in the corporate workplace than the church world, because the corporate workplace, exactly what you said, William, has a process for which they can advance. Like there is a system in place. It's normal. They're spoken to like, hey, we want you to advance. Here's your steps. And then people go into the church and it's almost shameful if you say, well, I I am doing this right now, but I really feel called to that. And people say, well, aren't you content? And you should just, you know, exactly, you know, work the field where you're at right now. And, and I think it can be both. I think we are called to people who are faithful with what we have for sure. But especially for this generation, again, who believe that they are very unique and special and have incredible talents, which God does give that to us. And um, for us to be able to say, hey, we know that you're going to make great impact exactly where you're at. And we want to know what is that thing that God has called you to even if it's outside of our church and our commitment to you as a pastor, as a leader, as a, you know, a CEO is to bring people on a process to walking out who God created them to be. And if we're not doing that because we want to keep them in a role or fill a slot on our staff, then we're not actually stewarding our leadership. Well, and so I, I agree a hundred percent, William, I think it's so important for leaders to really create opportunities for the next generation leaders to fully continue to walk out more and more and more of who they've been called to be. That's really great. Great insight. Go ahead, Grant. I just wanted to, I know we'll probably go into some questions, but uh, I, I think we'd miss out a lot if we didn't ask both of you guys, uh, Katie and William, just kind of like you guys have a unique place where you get to kind of see the the good, the bad, the ugly, the great culture and the, the need some health cultures of businesses, nonprofits, uh, churches, uh, I mean, when you guys see places that are building like a, a healthy culture for mm-hmm. young people and just as like when you see them, like the rest of the world may be struggling with reaching the next generation, mm-hmm. but like this church or this nonprofit, this business, like they're winning with it. Like they, they got more applications. They, they, they know what to do with. Like mm-hmm. uh, what are the marks of those places when it comes to their culture that you guys are seeing? Mm-hmm. Hey, do you want to go first? You want me to? Uh, I'll take it because it kind of builds on um, probably what you guys have been talking about, which is this development culture. Mm-hmm. And I think part of what you're highlighting is what I see, which is leaders who feel like staffing is a problem to be solved. Mm-hmm. And you want to check it off the box and like not have to think about it for a year. And anytime someone resigns, you're just like, oh, instead yeah. of looking at it as like, this is what I do. I lead yeah. people and constantly reposition. As Annie Stanley said, like some things are not, you know, problems to be solved, they're tensions to be managed. Yeah. Right. So this is something that's an ongoing piece. And part of it is looking at our organizations and especially our leadership structures as very fluid and very adaptable and very agile. I mean, that's kind of the leadership word um, of the last decade is agility means that it's strong and solid, but also flexible and adaptable. And sometimes we double down on strength because it feels like it will lock down and we won't have to worry about it. We can get to more important things. Sometimes we have cultures that are so fluid, no one knows what their current job is. Or I've seen leaders walk in and just like rearrange the staff for fun and to mix it up a little bit. And I'm like, 
you know, either extreme is unhealthy. It's, you know, real, real um, agility comes when you're strong and have good communication and a lot of clarity and flexibility and adaptability to the people, to the needs. And Hannah, you hit on a good point. I think one of the things that I see younger leaders demanding more of their leaders is they want to be pastored first Mm -hmm. and have a boss second. And I think for most church staff, we work as bosses first and maybe get around to pastoring if their need is really big or your spouse is having issues, right? We don't pastor people first on staff. And and I think the next generation is kind of like, look, the church I grew up with didn't actually pastor me either. That's kind of why I'm here. So are you going to do it or not do it? Um, So that's kind of my take. I think those development cultures, but also the mindset of the leaders has uh, flexibility built into. Their staffing is a part of their strategic plan, not something to solve and be done with. So good. That's so good. Uh, totally agree. Let me try and give a, another angle so that you've got multiple answers. Um, we did a study. So we started, we had all these millennials we have, and really an age bifurcation. We have a lot of people who have a lot of experience working in churches who then do consulting and help churches find their staff. And But the backbone of our company is people under 35 years old. And um uh, and, and they were younger 10 years ago than now. It's funny. After 10 years, you will be exactly 10 years older than you were today. <laughs> uh, so <laughs> so uh, we were winning all these awards for culture. And we had all these people staying and they were referring their friends to come work for us. And so we decided to write a book about it because as one of our smarter millennials, uh, Holly Tate said, William, let's write a book before we stop winning awards. very very good point uh so we didn't want it to be just about us so we said let's find 150 companies that are doing a killer job of keeping their employees like and winning best places work so what are they doing and what are the common denominators it led us to write a book called culture wins and it's kind of case studies so it's it's a little bit boring and a little bit story uh but one of the things i would say that uh, so so there, there are two pieces that I saw to a place that keeps people, particularly millennial and Gen Z. Uh, one is you just have a general health of your culture, and and we identified eight key markers of you know a healthy workplace, and then created a survey tool that's free that you can take and see how you map out against. I don't know, it's like two or three thousand. Christian-based companies that have taken the thing. It's at theculturetool.com. I know that sounds like a sales pitch, but it's not. I'm putting it, Brooks, in the chat window if you want to send it out to everybody. It's totally free deal that uh, will give you some place to start talking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, and that, so that's like the base block of the two blocks. The second block is the companies that are really good um, take a long time mm-hmm. to figure out what their real cultural values are. Mm. And, and I say that carefully because like a lot of people say we value this and we've got, and if I run into one more company that says, well, excellence is one of our values. I'm like, well, I'm yet to meet the company that has mediocrity as their value. <laughs> like it just doesn't happen. Right. So it's, it's no, what's your particular value? And is it right and real? I, w- when we were studying for the book, I read uh, in the lobby of the office of Enron, which a lot of people won't remember, uh, but Enron, seventh largest company in the world, totally fell fraud. One of their biggest core values was integrity. And it was like, <laughs> seriously? So uh, the, the baseline would be, are we healthy or are we not? Okay. Yeah. And then the second block would be take a long time to figure out what your real cultural values are. And here, here's how I would define that culture. If your vision is the thing God has given you to get done, Here's where we're going and what we're going to get done. Your culture is how we're going to behave together while we get that done. Sounds good. And so, you know, and and everybody can figure that out. But I interviewed uh, the guys at North Point and they said to me, you know, uh, Rick McKinley, who I'm sorry, Rick, uh, who was Andy's roommate and kind of runs the whole place outside of Andy uh, said, well, you know, William, when you get to 400 employees, you know how it is. I'm like, no, Rick, I really don't know what it's like to have 400 employees, <laughs> but uh, he said, well, we just, we had sayings, but we needed to go figure out our values. How long did it take you to do it? Took a year. I'm like, you have Andy Stanley. He might, might be the most capable person to turn a phrase in, 
yeah. American Christendom. Yeah. And they took a year to figure out how to, because they needed to take the time. And there's a long process for that. But I would say people that I see in the hundreds of groups we work with at any given time, there is a general health and there are lots of tools to figure out your general health. And then there's a specific knowledge of, of how we're going to behave while we get the vision done that God's given us. So that's, that's a long-winded answer. Sorry. Amazing. Amazing. So helpful. Yeah. That's good. So we have a couple of questions from the audience. And one of them, I want to, uh, let me say the question and then uh, sort of expand on it of what I'd like you guys to talk about. The question is, um, ways you've personally been mentored by older leaders that you found contributed um, to you having the platforms you have today? Like what would be some best practices for the leaders? And in your answer, I'd love for you to talk about, and maybe Grant, you could start us off because you mentioned discipleship before, uh, really a discipleship orientation to this. But I know most boomers, chances are, heard small group program when you said discipleship, and that is not at all what you mean. And so what we're really talking about is this more life on life, actual relationship, not me giving a staff meeting or making a video and sending it out, but actual interaction relationship building. Talk a little bit about that dynamic and how that possibly works on a church staff. I'm thinking of the higher level leaders who are out there and they're like, I've got so many volunteers on my team, or I have a leadership team of 12 direct reports. Like, how am I at all supposed to personally get to know everyone's uniqueness, you know, and be a Pixar leader who like, how do I do this in a way that's I'm sure I'm supposed to also be authentic. So how do I do this in a way? And what have you seen that works? Like, how do we start incorporating this into our leadership practices? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And I think, Katie, I mean, I, sincerely, I, I know you, you do this, uh, mm -hmm. this form of discipleship, which I want to caveat that I don't have the market on discipleship. What I say is not, I don't care as much about um, everyone doing discipleship the way I'm about to explain it. I do care about everyone having a clear plan for their leaders on what discipleship looks like. Uh, but you do do the way that I think is, it just is the best way. And so <laughs> I say that jokingly after saying, Hey, it's not the best, but it's the best. Well, I think um, you get a generation though, who's more are looking for what you're about to describe than are not. So go ahead. I, and you, definitely young people are hungry for what we're, what I'm about to say. Yes. Is uh, I think for a long time uh, at the core of discipleship in the church, we have thought it meant, um, content uh, or memorization of content. Um, but uh, I would say we need to think content, yes, but I would say the core needs to be replication. Um, and that's like, to me, is like, how do you know you are making disciple? Are you replicating yourself? Not, are you teaching someone or someone learning from you? Um, I don't think people that, I don't think the people I podcast and listen to are discipling me. And as much as I don't think someone I listen to um, on a Sunday is discipling me. I think they're equipping me. I think they're training me. I think they're even changing my perspective on God, uh, which is a massive deal. So it's not one's bad and one's the other. It's very, like you said, either, it's not either or, it's uh, both and. Uh, but I think you can only disciple a, a handful of people personally. Um, there are some people that can disciple a ton, depending on the nature of their work. But uh, I, I, a big mark of a disciple maker to me is, do you show up to things and every now and then like you're known to have someone following you and they're not just your assistant. Like they're just people you, that tag along often. Do you have a shadow who's younger in the faith? Um, and I've met so many young female leaders um, through you, Katie, when I go to events, because I mean, you sometimes bring like 10 um, to these different <laughs> events that you go to. And so it's a big deal. Like I, I think Hannah would say uh, that I, I try, I want to, I want to bring people with me into the things I'm doing. Um, and, and those, I mean, we, if every leader that's listening to this, if you're in a pretty unique position, where especially you're overseeing some big stuff, uh, you have a staff. I, I personally have found most leaders in that position all have a moment when you're like, Hey, when, when, when you were a teenager or maybe a young 20 something to someone older, trust you with something bigger than you deserve to be trusted with gambled on you thought believed in you and in a way that you didn't believe in yourself and almost everyone kind of has that story that's in a high caliber leadership position and so uh, i just think uh this idea of not just come and meet with me and especially not just come and listen to me but this idea of come and follow me uh we have got to get back to that and uh the beautiful thing about it is that everyone thinks they're too busy to disciple um, and that's, I think, because you're thinking of mentorship, which is meeting with someone and not discipleship, which is having someone follow you. Um, it means 
you got to find some hungry young leaders, which not many are. I don't want to act like every young person is, but there's a good amount. There are, there's a remnant of believers and COVID's only creating and producing more of that remnant of young people that are hungry for God and, and don't care anymore about what people think. They're like, I'm boldly going to live for Jesus. And I'd say, you know, a young person like that, and you know, they don't have someone older pouring into them. You might need to be that person that's uh, pouring into them and including them in your personal life, maybe in the things you love to do just for fun. That's a great start. Or your family life. Uh, you can include uh, a generation that's coming from one of the most broken home uh, generations we've ever seen and divorces that we've ever seen. Uh, you can invite them into your church life, potentially your work life. Uh, it doesn't mean it needs to reach every one of those arenas, but the more you introduce them into that world, um, I think it's massive. Uh, so even just lastly answering for me, you take out the people, the men and women that believed in me, invested in me and allowed me not just to say, I see something in you, but also like, I want you to come into my world and expose me to a world bigger, better, more mature than me just hanging out with all my young friends. You take out those guys. Uh, I probably just, I don't know what I'd be doing. I probably wouldn't be doing crazy bad things. I just probably wouldn't be doing crazy great things for God. Um, and so I think that's where the enemy's getting us a lot for the younger generation is I don't think he's really trying to get a lot. He doesn't even need to get too many young Christians deep into sin. He just needs to get them stuck because um, they're just as ineffective if they're stuck and without hope, without direction, without clarity, and they're just waiting for what they're supposed to do. And that historically used to be older leaders finding a gift in someone and saying uh, what, what Timothy said to Paul, uh, but t sorry, what Paul said to Timothy is like this gift that's been given to you by elders um, is what he says for Timothy four thirteen, And he says, fan it into flame. Um, and I just thought that was powerful that the gift was recognized by elders and then he's selling you now, now you fan it into flame. And, and there's a lot of young people that have never had a gift uh, acknowledged or fan into flame by, by older leaders. But the ones that do get that at a young age, by the time they're in their thirties and forties, they're, they're killing it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. I mean, I, I really, I want to touch on that, that point you made Grant, that everyone thinks they're too busy for discipleship because when we look at the example of Jesus, when he came to earth, he had a pretty big job to do, right? Like he was here on a mission to save all of humanity. And yet, if we look at his life, so much of it was spent with his circles. He had his, his 72, he had his 12, and he even had those three. And again, these were not people that he was having coffee with one time. He wasn't swooping in and saying, I'm a really important guy and I can give you an hour at Chipotle. No, he was saying, yo, come have access to my life. But he didn't give it to everyone. And I think that is that weird tension we walk as leaders is we're not called to disciple every person, but if we're not at least discipling our three, right, if we're not at least starting there or our 12 or whatever our capacity is, then, then we are not stewarding our own leadership and, and our life. And I, I, I think we so often overcomplicate this kind of like what Grant was saying, you know, is it a system? Is it a program? Is it discipleship content that you write? And I'm really grateful because I am absolutely, as, as Graham mentioned, the product of incredible people who discipled me. Um, one of them being my, or two of them being my parents. My parents are incredible leaders who discipled me my entire life and did it really, really well. Um, my pastor, when I was on staff, when I was 18 years old, um, I was fresh and wide-eyed and an intern at my church. And my pastor brought me into his office one day, his name's John Peacock, and he said, and I think you're a leader and I think you're going to be a communicator and a speaker. And he threw me up on main stage to give announcements and to start talking and preaching and living out this thing. And then there was a woman in my community who was an amazing pastor and communicator, Aubrey Sampson. And I wanted to be her essentially. And I asked if she would involve me in her life. And she did. And um, she is an author, a mom of three kids, you know, speaks all around the country, but she made time and she would invite me to her target runs. And she was the one that I sat down with and would say, Hey, I don't know what I believe about this theology point. And she would go great and open up that theology book, you know, and then other days we're talking about really practical things as we walk through the aisles of target. Right. And then there was, you know, even more um, like broad, uh, there was uh, Danielle Strickland was a woman who has just created so much opportunity for me, I reached out to her as a young female, 
Camille and I said, hey, I, I have a call in my life. And she said, great, if you do, then I'm going to give you an opportunity to use it. And she's just opened door after door, even if it meant she gives away opportunities for me to have opportunities. And that's, I think, the sign of a really secure leader is how much opportunity are you willing to give away so the next generation has a place to flex and to try and to fail and experiment. And if I didn't have all these safe people who allowed me to try, who created space, who said, I see something in you and here's an opportunity, I knew I wouldn't be who I am today. Um, But because I saw that example too, it was a very, very natural thing for me to recognize that that was my job to do that for other people as well. And I think that is another important part of discipleship is if you want the next generation to disciple Gen Alpha, then you better be discipling Gen Z, right? Like if we don't want Gen Alpha to be raised without people discipling them, it's it's the older leader's responsibility to, to disciple them. And I'm so grateful for the example that I have had of people discipling me and truly the opportunity to disciple this group of young women that I have the opportunity of discipling has been one of the greatest gifts of my life. And I just want to caveat that by saying that was example, but there was also our executive pastor of our church that I was in when I was uh, 17 gave a very clear talk about what discipleship actually means. And he explained it with the three, the 12, the 72. And he said to every person, he said, who are your three? And I think a lot of times churches, we don't talk about discipleship really practically anymore and actually say, hey, every person in the church right now, this is your responsibility. And I'm so glad he did because 17-year-old Hannah said, okay, I guess I need to find my three. And I did. I found three middle school girls who were younger than me. And I said, I, can I take you out and hang out with you and talk about Jesus with you? And it bloomed into something really beautiful. And I still disciple those same women today. And so... I think we have to model it, but we also have to teach it, especially if we want Gen Z to do this for the future generations. Yeah. Oh, I want to comment so real good. quick on, on Hannah, because I was just at the wedding, uh, at her wedding two weeks ago, and uh, she had junior bridesmaids. And I've never seen a young person do this, because uh, even that's challenging. We, we, I used When I got discipled, if it weren't for a kid when I was in college, who he, he asked me when I was 19 if I discipled him. And he was a freshman. So I definitely knew I could. I was farther along, but I was like, man, I was discipled by a married man with kids. I don't, I feel like once I get married and have kids, that's when I can start discipling. Um, and we all have this idea of like, once I arrive here, then I can start discipling. It's like, we all end up not discipling because we never arrived to this moving target. But to see you, Hannah, and she had these junior bridesmaids, it was like six, seven girls that from middle school. And now they're like in high school and maybe some are, yeah, some are going to college that, consistently discipling and now they're in her wedding. I mean, I think that's a powerful testimony of if you do it for someone when they're young, it's very natural to be like, well, I can't say no because this absolutely transformed my life. So I want to do it for someone else as well. Right. That's right. Mm. That's so good. I do think one of the biggest challenges to being a disciple maker is that we have lots and lots of people who feel like they have never actually been discipled. And it's probably true. It's kind of like that reparenting that has to happen if you didn't grow up great parents when you have kids you have to like not only learn how to be a parent but you kind of have to like reparent yourself in the process that's why therapy is so helpful (laughs) and so uh, we do have a gap in that because many of um many of our models and systems have really been broken in this for quite a while in sort of the bigger church and so uh that brings us to one of our other questions from the audience which is as you're building this culture for young leaders and you guys kind of hit on it when um we're giving opportunity and we're spending now relational time with people and we're investing in younger generations. There is this older generation that have spent 10, 20 years in a church or on a staff that would love to have lunch with the senior pastor. And it's great that we have this 19 year old intern who's going to be gone in three months, but why is he investing there when I'm the one who paid my dues, right? So how do you create a culture or a space or what do you do with the folks that have been there a long time? How do you make sure you're bringing everybody together as you're giving platform? I remember for me, one of my stories is I was the first woman to teach solo at my church. 
And it was at a little, it, was, it wasn't even at the main campus. I was like the, the person who tried it out, right? Well, with the, and I had worked there for a long time. And within two or three years, we had women all over platforms all over. And I just remember thinking, this is a crossroads for me personally. I can either be frustrated by that and want it back. I earned this. Yes. Or I can be like, gosh, my calling is to like, bump down that door and then let a whole bunch of people come through. <laughs> and that was up to me to kind of choose that. But that is a different kind of leadership that you do for someone who's been around for a while than you're doing for someone who's just didn't even know there was ever a block to this. So what are some ways that you see that happening? What are some suggestions you have for leaders who are trying to keep everybody going, especially when the older people are the ones that will stay? <laughs> How do you balance those two things at the same time? Yeah, great question. Um, for me, I would say my big kick right now, or my big message right now is that we are so over glorifying the gift of speaking and so under glorifying the gift of disciple making. And it's such a brilliant strategy for the enemy to attract us so much to being great speakers because logistically or statistically, uh, sorry, most people are afraid to speak in public. Like they don't like doing what we're doing right now. Like this to us is like pretty easy. Like we got to, you know, we go to the events where they're like, Hey, we're all preachers. So you guys got to be short. We know y'all can go like, we can do this. Uh, but by and large, most people, we've all heard the statistic that most people fear speaking in public more than dying. Or for me, I like, how can you fear that more than sharks? That is sharks. Are like, I, you are helpless. You cannot swim faster than you don't even know when they're coming to get you, but most people are scared of speaking. And so what a, what a false uh, scorecard if we make everything around speaking, because and I'll get to the point of like, how do we not isolate or alienate the other generations is like, if you make it about speaking, then you got a lot of people that don't ever feel qualified or equipped to do it. Yeah. But if you make it about discipleship, then not everything's based on the speaker or the main uh, communicator on a Sunday. They play a vital role, important role, a, a role that, that clearly statistically few people can do. Um, but uh, not everyone can be a speaker, but everyone can be a disciple maker. Like uh, a CEO can be a disciple maker. A stay-at-home mom can be a disciple maker. A high school student can be a disciple maker. But not all of them are probably called to um, force themselves into becoming a speaker. And so... Uh, when you start making discipleship the the scorecard and and probably one of the more glorified gifts, uh, not even glorified, it's just literally what Jesus did. Most of his ministry, it's what he said to do in his last words. Therefore, it should be what we do. It's like it's literally in the mission statement uh, uh, that he gave us. And so um, I think to myself, if discipleship is the main vehicle of the church, then the older you get, the more important you are in a, in a way. Because finding young people that have time because they're unmarried or without kids. Uh, me, and, me and Hannah, I got married six months ago. She got married like two weeks ago. We just lost the gift of singleness. Um, it's the most valuable asset that young people have is time. Uh, now, Hannah, I mean, you, I'm not saying, but if you want to buy something, you got to ask Aaron. If you want to go somewhere, you got to run it by Aaron. I got to run it by Cheyenne. Uh, I can't just go and do stuff like I used to. And so um, for them, those guys, there's a lot of young people that are single. But to get people who are married, now I'm like, man, that's who I need is I need married couple. They're very valuable because can they disciple me in my marriage? And for the married couple, they need discipleship from the older leaders that have kids. Um, what is it like to have kid, one kid? What is it like to have two or three kids? How do you manage having three of these kids um, at the same time? And those guys need to know what is it like when they're in high school um, and they're about to graduate and they start leaving the house. I, I need discipleship from older now, the empty nesters. Yeah. Uh, I need discipleship from what is it like when you're, you're living just you and your wife and, or you and your husband again, like, um, and you realize you put a lot of emphasis on your kids. I need an older generation to disciple me on that. I need older generation now to disciple me on what is it like when you lose your spouse? Uh, what is it like when you just be faithful and to finish well? Like uh, every generation gets older. It's like, well, we have fewer and fewer of those people in this culture that we need discipleship from them. So I, I think that's a long answer to say uh, when you build around discipleship, you don't alienate the older generation. You just yeah. actually start seeing the value of like only you can really show the way here because you have the experience, even if you feel like mostly it's from failing forward um, and it's from pain that you've learned this wisdom. Uh, you could help others save years of pain. 
uh, if you could just share how, how you got to where you got and how you're, how you're walking with Jesus in this season that we're about to enter into now. Wow. Grant, how, how does that work? You're, Cause I feel like you're laying out discipleship as life stages. Yeah. You're really representing a generation that doesn't follow any stage pathway. <laughs> Like mm-hmm. there will be people, there's more people in your generation that will be single their entire life than any other time in history. More people who will be childless than any other time in history. So how does that fit into this model of, I got to find someone married. Now I find someone with kids. Like that doesn't seem broad enough to me. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and there's definitely been seasons where it's like, I, I found that most times you know, uh, pe- people are trying to get discipled and learning a competency or a season, like how to operate in a certain season they're walking into, or characteristic, like um, a character of God that's being displayed through um, a person. And uh, I, in an ideal world, it'd be like, I want, can you disciple me in how to just love Jesus deeply? Yes. And, and, and I want to sprinkle that in every little season, every, every skill set that you want to learn, every career. But when I'm thinking about young people, when I'm like, how they kind of, how do I get to where they're like, I need this. It's not a luxury to get discipled. It's a necessity because I want to be here. Mm-hmm. Usually it is on a life stage thing or a career. They're, they're hitting That's a like wall. Time. They're hitting a wall of I'm responsible for something I can't deliver on. Who can yeah. help me? That, kind of that yeah. mentor space. Yeah. And I think that that character quality development, that whole personal, personal, personal growth, whole yeah. life growth is what we're talking about. I do think, though, in terms of diversity is we do have to shift sometimes our mindsets to be open to be discipled by all sorts of people, not just people that are in a path we see for ourselves or look like what we want to be or how we imagine ourselves. But And I know you're great at that. I just wanted to kind of highlight that um, for everyone listening, that this doesn't, this isn't like a life season or a family ministry. This is like life in general, and it's really integrated in our church body to do it well. Yeah. Yeah. Couldn't Couldn't agree with you more, Katie. I I don't know how many of these we've done, but it seems like I always, I really don't try and counterpoint Katie. She is way smarter than I am. Uh, does need to be a wide group of people, but I, I do want to go back to, because I've been the senior pastor where I was actually the younger senior pastor. I had older staff that wanted my time and I'm trying to pour into people younger than me. And I was caught in a wedge. I wish I had an answer. This is a fabulous question Katie's asked. And I think I might just be getting old and grumpy it's entirely possible, but I think that um, I think that if I if I had an older person on my staff that was mad that I was pouring into younger people, well, first of all, they're an older generation, so you can just say because I said so, it still works with them, right? So, <laughs> so you know, and if that doesn't work, I might be tempted to say something as as brassy as, "How old were Jesus' disciples?" Yeah, come on. I don't see an instance of anything except people who are farther down the road pouring into people who are not as far down the road. Now, I'd love to spend some time talking about reverse mentoring because I think that's a huge opportunity for I get mentored by our younger staff all the time. It might be as simple as a tech thing or how to think differently, but, but in the discipleship life on life thing, I'm not sure there's a replacement for the experience that's gained over time. I, I, I forget how the saying goes, but it's, you know, why is youth wasted on the young and wisdom on the old? Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like you can't learn some things till you've stepped on a rake enough times in life. That you can say, hey, don't step on that. And, and I, I might look at that older person who's mad at me for pouring into younger people saying, I'm sorry, because I said so. I, I got to make a way for the next generation. And this is yeah. the only way I know how. So I'm probably just old and crusty. Sorry. <laughs> I think that's so good to you because in reality, that's every part of our world is we, we find a way to become disunified, right? Like we find a way to feel like the other and, and speaking from a generation that does this really well to feel like the victim. Right. To feel like everyone's ignoring me or I'm not getting enough attention. And again, that's a very real experience. And it's not because that person's bad. It's not because it's not a valid desire. However, I think this is an opportunity 
for us to um, ask the question, right? Like, if we really believe that any win for the kingdom is a win for me who's a part of the kingdom, then why am I even asking this question? Right. And so if I'm an older leader, I I can only say this because I saw older leaders do this so well in my life. I'll use the example of my dad. Um, My dad is an incredible hero in my life. He was a chain breaker in his family. And because of him, I know Jesus. And he is a man who is so wise, has taught me so much about Jesus. And yet um, he will sit in the back row of a church where I'm preaching on Sunday morning. And he will walk up to me at the end with tears in his eyes and tell me what God taught him through my words, his 26-year-old daughter. And there is no ounce of jealousy. He's not wishing he was up on that stage. He doesn't say, I wish it was David Gronowski instead of Hannah Gronowski. He looks at me and says, thank you for changing what the name Gronowski has meant. And it has felt like an honor to to take his legacy forward in that way. And so I want to say that I believe, because I've seen it, that there is a way for older leaders to have a bigger, broader perspective and say, if I want the kingdom to be carried forward in our world, I'm going to celebrate every time I see a young leader get excited about the gospel, be discipled in the gospel, and get a chance to share the gospel. Mm, So good. So good. Awesome. Yeah, so good. Well, we just have a couple minutes left. Do either of you have a final piece of advice for all of the folks watching today? My Just commenting on this uh, theme that that Hannah said, and uh, you as well, William, is uh, I've been thinking about this so much this year as I'm now – 31. And so I know I'm still young, but hey, I hang out with 19 year olds, 20 year olds. Um, and I, I remember telling myself when I was uh, in my twenties, I was feeling like, I was like, man, I'm fighting to get a seat at the table and not in a sense of like too soon. I'm like, I'm not even fighting for me. I'm fighting for my generation to have a seat at the table. And I felt like I truly had to fight for it. Even when I'm like, Hey, it's obvious we need one because our generation's leaving the church and our generation leaving the faith. Like I'm not doing this because I want to be a voice. I want it to help the broader church reach the next generation. Cause my friends, they don't feel like when I hear about millennials and statistics, I think of my friends. Like I'm like, yep, that's spot on based on my experience with my friends. Yeah. That's spot on based on the kids I grew up with in church who are not in church anymore. Um, and so I, they're never numbers. They're stories for me. They're friends. And so um, I just always remember thinking when I'm older, man, I don't know what happens because everyone was in their twenties at some point and trying to fight for this. And then at some point you get invited to the table and I swear, it's like, you forget what it felt like to be not at the table. And it's like, I just like, I don't know how it happens. And I would assume everyone told themselves they wouldn't let that happen. But I'm like, I will not let that happen. I don't know. I, I remember not to let that happen. So when I, um, when I got put on a panel with a, at 29 with a 19 year old and we were talking about the next generation, and he, he clarified next generation is Gen Z, not millennials. And he's like, as much as I love older generations, like the millennials and Grant. And I'm like, bro, I'm not even 30. <laughs> and I decided, okay, so it's starting to happen. This is the first six time it's happened where I just got called old by someone younger than me. Um, I told myself I could either be like Saul, who I was all cool with it when we were the next gen guys together, like, like David and Saul working together on the battlefield but once he then i realized oh he's like the new guy yeah um I, like, I always told myself i i want to be like saul but secure and i've always thought what if saul was a secure wow. and guy who didn't have a scarcity mindset uh, like believed in a god that had cattle on a thousand hills what if i was that kind of leader what if a generation of millennials came up to be the generation that I think got really critiqued a lot really made fun of for like 20 whole years just studied misunderstood, made fun of and critiqued and participation trophies and all the jokes. Um, and then still decided, despite all that we received and we're finally getting the seat at the table, we quickly focus on Gen Z. And not to not to say, oh, these guys are on TikTok and blah, 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 because uh, we'd all make fun of them. Or we say like, hey, uh, the message is gonna stay the same. The methods are gonna change a bit. Let's, let's, let's give them wisdom. Let's give them resources. Let's connect them. So I'm really shifting towards that. And I would encourage, I think that's where millennials and Xers actually can really connect now in being the bridge of the resources, the wisdom, the power of the boomer generation that still has a lot of that. And I think is getting forward, especially post COVID 
to give up some of that, hopefully enthusiastically and not um, begrudgingly, and be a bridge of, I know they look a little different or do it a little different, and they do need discipleship, but that's what we're, we're doing right now. We're going to disciple and empower Gen Z to reach the most lost generation our nation has ever seen. And I think of Saul towards David of the only thing that mattered uh, that changed things that made it go south was like Hannah said was once his name was getting more appreciation than David's name. And if we're on the same team, it's like, yo, we're all going to get to heaven. Our crowns all, even the guys who get the big crowns, Billy Graham and I are going to be pretty equal because he did all the same things. But he's got to throw his crown before Jesus, so no one's going to see that. Me and him will be the same. <laughs> and so I want to thank every man for Jesus. But trying to, like, get more recognition is yeah. not – it doesn't matter. Like, it really doesn't matter. And we don't have the luxury to fight over it. Too many lost people in the next generation to even care about credit right now. And so, um, yeah, what I, what I would say is I think about Saul, and I think if Saul was secure, if he had, didn't have a scarcity mindset, would David have fallen in trouble with Bathsheba? Or would he have someone over his shoulder say, hey, what are you, what are you looking at? Um, would Uriah be alive today? Would Jonathan and Saul be alive? Because they would have been on a different battlefield doing their own thing while David was doing his thing, but they're together. And I just think, man, it could have been, how much would Israel have been influenced and impacted just by the security of Saul um, in his okay. leadership? And so uh, I think about that in this generation of, leaders and pastors and business leaders of if we have a secure identity and who we are and what we've done, and it's not finished, desperately going to be needed for the next generation. It's just a new approach. Uh, we could really turn things around and see, yeah, this hunger that this generation has turned into like a revival is my hope. Amen. Amen. That is a great note to end on. Grant and Hannah, thank you both so much for your insight. I want to encourage all of our leaders who are watching to connect with these two. If you would like some help in helping your church or even your own leadership or some uh, millennials, Gen Z, Alpha Generation coming up, they've got great resources for that. And William, always a pleasure to spend a conversational hour with you. Thanks, everybody. We'll see you next time.